Prime Minister Justin Trudeau unveiled his newest cabinet last week, and there were some new faces in prominent positions and some surprised emotions. Melanie Jolie and Anita Anand were among a number of women promoted to senior roles, embattled Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan and Mark Garneau were among key demotions as the Liberals get set to return to the House of Commons in a few weeks. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Tasha Carradine, National Post columnist and principal with Navigator Limited, joins me to discuss what we can expect from Cabinet in terms of priorities, how this sets the Liberals up for the next election, and how the cabinet signals who could be in the running to eventually replace Justin Trudeau. Don't forget you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Tasha, we've had a couple days now to kind of let the announcement of cabinet, the makeup, the size, you know, think about what it all means Since Justin Trudeau announced his latest cabinet, we've got a few weeks now until MPs go back to the House of Commons. I'm just wondering, you know, when you saw the rollout of all the announcements on Tuesday, what were your initial thoughts? My initial thought was that it's a big government, government, a big government cabinet. And uh, we knew Christopher Freeland was going to be in the poll position of both deputy prime minister and also finance minister. And she is certainly in favor of government spending. She's in favor of programs. She's in favor of government as sort of a, you know, an equalizer uh, of fortunes. She's written about it extensively. And in her previous positions, that was quite, quite clear as well. That was her intent. But we also saw an expansion of government into areas where we, we know the government has plans like housing, for example, you know, giving it a standalone ministry, a lot of focus on regional Uh, economic development, where there's a very political angle too. that was the second thing I would say that apart from being a, you know, a government set that's set up to spend, it's also a government that's set up politically to help the liberals reconnect with areas of the country where they think they might want to do better. Every Mm -hmm. regional ministry has now a cabinet minister in charge of it. And Quebec got just shy of a quarter of the cabinet uh, seats, but very high profile seats, including Champagne, Jean-Philippe Champagne, who's got uh, a very important role in terms of industry. You've got Melanie Jolie, who is now a foreign affairs minister. It's got a very big political stamp on it, too. I think that the liberals are cognizant. They're not going to be around, you know, for four years. If they're kidding themselves if they think that. So they're looking at the next election already, and this cabinet reflects that. One of the things that took me off guard was the fact that Harjit Sajjan, not that he was moved out of defense, and we can talk about that move as well, but the fact that he was even still in cabinet based on how the sexual misconduct in the military scandal has been handled by the ministry. What did you make of him getting a demotion, but not being shuffled out? Well, I was surprised too. I think part of it is representation as well. I think this is the other thing with this cabinet is that the prime minister has made a conscious choice to have a lot of very strong regional representation and Harjit Sajjan fits that bill, but also uh, diversity. So I think that might be one of the reasons that he is also still in the cabinet, though, you know, arguably there are other other players who've been overlooked. A lot has been made, in fact, of um, the fact that Greg Fergus, for example, a very, very strong black MP from Quebec has not been part of this cabinet. But regardless, now Anita and Anne can clean up the mess in um, in defense, I guess. It's going to be interesting to see how that works out. But that Harjit Sajjan is still there. I, I think it flies in the face of the appointment of women to strong positions. I think Trudeau is kind of balanced, trying to balance there and say, look, I put all, all very strong 
cabinet positions, women are in very strong cabinet positions, stronger than they've ever had before. So maybe he'll overlook the fact that Mr. Sajid is still around. Now you talk about, you know, women being in more powerful positions than they've ever been in before. Obviously, Christia Freeland was kind of even before cabinet was announced, we knew that she was going to be back as finance minister. Yeah. I'm looking at some of the other positions, as you said, Anita Anand as defense minister. Mm-hmm. One of the ones that kind of caught me by surprise was Melanie Jolie. Mm-hmm. There are some who feel that perhaps she's not been the most high performing of Trudeau cabinet ministers. She's faced a lot of criticism in her time in cabinet. What do you see as her appointment as foreign affairs minister signifying? I'm not sure either. To be honest, I was surprised as well that she got that position. She she says she's vowing to fill it with humility and audacity. I have no idea what that even means. But, you know, arguably, this cabinet is also a changing of the guard. It's quite clear that Trudeau has put loyalists in the key positions. He's moved people out who, you know, former leadership rivals like Mark Garneau, Mm -hmm. Jim Carr, a longstanding Western MP, gone. Those spaces aren't around. So the old guard liberals are, are being pushed out. Melanie Jolie very much represents the sort of Trudeau acolyte group. I'm thinking, you know, foreign affairs has been a, a dark spot for this government generally. I mean, they've, they've gone through, I think, five foreign affairs ministers in the last government. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. And this revolving door hasn't helped. Um, you know, Trudeau himself, I think, has sees himself more as the foreign affairs minister in a way. He's the guy who's sort of the wants to be seen as the international statesman. That hasn't worked out either, quite mm-hmm. frankly. You know, he's had disastrous foreign affairs trips, such as the one to India, which we still can remember his last foray at the G7. He was kind of ignored by the other leaders, really not taken as seriously as he would have liked to have been. So I think that this position, I won't say it's it's a puppet position. It's the wrong thing to say. But I think he still sees himself as the face of foreign affairs for Canada. So whoever fills these the foreign affairs portfolio you know, it's not going to be as impactful as someone might have been if they had more gravitas like Garneau in that position. Looking at who may be the big winner out of this cabinet, when you're talking about regions or groups or people, who would you say kind of is the big winner with Justin Trudeau's newest cabinet? Well, I do think Quebec, like I said, because you've got, you know, Gilbo and environment, you've got Champagne in industry, which is going to be a very, very important one. You've got Jolie at foreign affairs. You've got a quarter of the seats generally. A lot of the new faces come from Quebec. So you definitely have, a, I think the liberals realize they really have to do better in Quebec next time around if they're going to win majority government. And I think this is, they're taking full advantage of the fact. Now, Garneau was removed. He was a Quebec minister. So that is one down. But at the same time, I think Trudeau also wanted to have gender parity. So he put in female ministers as well from some of the new Quebec faces. So I would say on balance, Quebec did very, very well. And I'm not totally surprised for electoral reasons like I outlined before. One of the things that Justin Trudeau talked about in the election campaign, or at least kicking off the election campaign and then kind of forgot about it, was what Canada is going to look like over the next 17 months, 17 years, as we come out of the pandemic, pandemic recovery key to everybody's mind. Is this a cabinet that telegraphs what we can expect from him in terms of pandemic recovery? Does it kind of hit the marks in terms of issues that Canadians are worried about right now? Absolutely. Like I said, it, it really does focus on this sort of post-pandemic or pandemic recovery um, measures the government thinks will be will be useful. And that starts with, you know, the $7 billion of continued relief that Christopher Freeland announced before the cabinet was even cemented. 
to say we're going to continue to roll out relief. Um, they've renamed some of it. You know, it's the now it's a lockdown benefit. If you're locked down, you can apply. Otherwise, you won't. So I guess Doug Ford can't call it a shutdown anymore. If people <laughs> want to get their benefits. It's a lockdown. Also, uh, like I said, the housing ministry is very interesting that it got a standalone under Ahmed Hassan. Also, you know, a progressive. This cabinet is so progressive. I mean, the blue liberals apparently are fuming in the corner. I'm not surprised at that at all, because there are very few of them. In fact, none of them really that I can see in this mix. So you're going to see there a rollout, a very interventionist agenda. The government's talked about implementing a 3% tax on banks, financial institutions and insurance companies, tying that to housing relief. And they've already they had promised a billion dollars in loans and grants to turn renters into owners, building or shoring up 1.4 million homes. Well, the money's got to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I think the government is going to be either in the throne speech or fall economic statement dropping this one about uh, how they're going to they're going to get the the companies or the corporations that made money in the pandemic to do their share, quotes unquote. So it's very much in Freeland's wheelhouse too. this whole idea of, you know, those who make money should should give it back to those who did not. So I think, yes, to that point. And I think with industry, with Champagne as well, there's going to be a lot of outreach to business, which has not been seen as favorable in the public eye as government. Government's really been a big winner in terms of public opinion, in terms of how they've managed the pandemic or helped people. Business is not. So I think that, you know, that relationship uh, will be interesting to see how he manages it. But I think government will increase its ties in some ways to industry because the, the larder is bare too. Let's be honest, they've indebted themselves so much yeah. that, um, you know, the, the government can't do all the lifting. So I think it's going to look to the private sector, but it's going to call the tune when it does so. Now, I'm out here in Alberta. One of the things that I noticed was the reaction of our premier to the announcement of not just the Environment and Climate Change Minister, Stephen Gilbo, but also the fact that the former environment minister is now the natural resources minister. You have two people who who lean very progressive on the climate file in two key positions in dealing with Alberta. The federal conservatives have raised uh, issue with that, and and Jason Kenney has called it like a slap in the face to Alberta. What do you make of both of those appointments? And do you think it's a, a signifier that despite the fact that in the past Justin Trudeau has talked about you can have a strong economy and a strong environment and in Canada, oil helps drive the economy. We're moving away from that as a federal government. Well, I think, you know, COP26 is on the horizon. So he wanted to send a strong signal and strong delegation there to say, look, look, Canada's really going to do its part. We're going to meet our targets. Electric vehicles, here we go. And no increase in terms of dependency on oil, at the very least. I think that the signal it sends, though, clearly to Alberta is is a very negative one. And it's ironic because at a time when oil prices are stratospheric, right? You've got an industry there that arguably is going to be doing reasonably well in the in the short term to medium term anyway. But I think that the climate file is an interesting one because in research that was done by uh, the consulting firm I work for, Navigator, we, we asked people what they expect on climate. And voters who supported the liberal government didn't do it because they thought they had a great record on climate. They just thought the liberals care about climate. Mm -hmm. They care about it. They don't really even know what they want them to do. Mm -hmm. They just say, well, they care. And we know that we trust them on it. And Gilbo has that cred, right? He's been with Ecuterre. He's been with Greenpeace. He founded Ecuterre, in fact, in Quebec. So he's he, he cares. But what are they really going to do? You know, the targets have been set. The carbon tax is there. Are they going to go further than that? Are they going to, and this is the interesting thing again with industry, are they going to partner with industry and say, we're going to, you know, encourage development of technologies, whether it's carbon capture or others, which ironically was what the conservatives were saying government should do in the campaign. But 
I wonder if the liberals are going to go that route because there's support for that, definite support for that. And I think there'd be support in the oil patch where efforts are being made on those scores to get cleaner oil Mm -hmm. to negate the impacts that it has. So I'm not sure if the government's totally giving up on oil, but they certainly are to the public. In the public face, they are. They are going to say all these good things to get their progressive cred up. But I, I don't think economically they can afford to simply dump everything. Plus, they also put Randy Boissonneau in cabinet, which I thought is interesting, too. Uh, don't forget him. <laughs> he's the tourist. Oh, he's head of tour- tourism is going to be, you know, that's going to be a ministry that's going to get quite a bit of attention because it's been so hard hit. Yeah. But also, I think because they see they sense opportunity in Edmonton for the liberals next time around electorally. Yeah. And I mean, if you're talking about regional representation, you have one of two choices in Alberta and, and one of the two of them is under investigation. So Randy <laughs> Boissonneau seemed like a, a good pick if you're picking in Alberta. Very true. <laughs> um, you, you know, as you mentioned, this is a, a big government cabinet. This is potentially a big spending cabinet, which some may see as a good thing. Some may see as a, not a good thing. Where for you do you feel that Justin Trudeau kind of hit the mark on picking his cabinet? Well, it depends what perspective you you have. I mean, from his perspective, I think he hit the mark. I think for his voters and and liberals in general and progressives in general will look at this cabinet and go, yeah, great. I mean, it's been some criticism, like I said, of a, the exclusion of um, some of his BIPOC MPs that arguably should have been there and they're not. But generally speaking, I think that um, if his idea is to craft a progressive group of, you know, big government allies and acolytes, he's done that. So if you're an NDP voter, you're looking at this and going, hmm, you know what, these people are probably going to do a lot of the stuff that uh, my party likes. So, you know, maybe next time around, if I'm a switcher, ah, it could be interesting for me. So I think in that sense, he's hit the mark. Personally, I, I, you know, I think this government is going to spend us into the ground and it's going to be a serious problem considering inflation is really increasing dramatically and uh, interest rates could follow suit, uh, even though they bank says they will hold them till next year, but mm-hmm. it's, it's not a good scene. So I think that with, yeah, with his people, so to speak, with his supporters, he's definitely done what he had to do. And the question for me, I wonder what this means for him and his political future, because, you know, you, you surround yourself with people that, that support you. It's because you want to stick around. But on the other hand, it seems like he's giving Christopher Freeland the keys to the, to the <laughs> office. So I don't know if he's going to be around for the next election. I mean, just looking at that makeup, obviously, Christia Freeland is someone that people have felt is like a a shoe in for jumping in the race once Justin Trudeau leaves. Mm -hmm. Does this cabinet hint at any others who are likely leadership contenders? Should this be Justin Trudeau's last term? Yeah, I think Chopin is definitely, definitely. I mean, Quebec's got to have someone in there in the game. And also, Felix Chopin is definitely the guy that most people look at and go, "Mm hmm. He could be someone who could be a contender. I think that in terms of women, too, I mean, apart from her, I wonder if you would see Anita Anand, for example, or other person. There's, you know, there are quite a few who are representational candidates as well for their community, in addition to being cabinet ministers generally that might, you know, be there. Ahmed Hassan, who knows, right? I mean, I think you've got a lot of players who now have a lot of space to advance and flex their muscles. So, it's a strong group. It's not just Freeland. And if people think she's a shoe in I've been talking to some liberals who like, they don't agree with that. And in fact, if things go sour for this government, she will wear a lot of it, which would be very negative for her. So she better hope things go, you know, according to plan. Yeah. Because otherwise she could be the fall girl, not fall guy. One more question here on the makeup of cabinet. As you said, it's a very progressive cabinet. Minority governments typically only last 
you know, 18 months at most, maybe two years on the long side of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know Stephen Harper's went a little more than two years. Does this cabinet hint that the liberals are trying to stretch out their term by playing to maybe the Bloc Québécois or more likely the NDP in terms of support issues that it wants to focus on? I think actually it shows they're trying to get a lot done fast. I think that they actually, they know there's a, there's a window and it's, it's naive to say four years. I think it could, it could be a bit longer. It could be maybe two, mm-hmm. two to three. I don't necessarily think it'll be 18 months. Cause like you said, if there's a leadership race that will stretch things out a bit. Um, they might do a leadership race going into an election, right. To give that person the momentum that's conceivable, but still, so you're looking at two years probably, but I think they want to get a lot done and their voters expect them to get a lot done. That's the other thing. Um, polling all across the board, including stuff that we did, shows that they want action now. They want things, you know, they want tangible stuff. They want that daycare spot. They want to see something done on climate change. They're not sure what, but something has to be done. The housing piece, affordability. Affordability, you know, we didn't talk about it too much, but that is really the underpinning of all of this. As things get more expensive, people will start to complain and grumble and say, well, you know, government, what are you doing for me? And the Liberals, being a big government party, will have to have an answer for that, or their voters will will feel let down. Well, we'll see how this new cabinet performs when they return to the House of Commons in November. Tasha, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been fun. 10-3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Tasha Carradin. More from her at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.